hey y'all, you tired of church teaching that just ain't right and it's kind of contrary to all God's word and such? Well, you need to know how to refute it. This here channel will help you out. We got answers. Welcome to Contending for Christ Apologetics, where old Danny boy seeks to equip you with some tools that you can go out and fight that good fight and really develop that there Christian faith. Now get after it, y'all. Welcome back to another episode of the Berean Dialogues. I'm your host, Russell LaFleur, and today's guest is a very good friend of mine, Daniel Weyerbach. Danny, welcome to the show. Thank you, Russ. Appreciate you having me. All right, man. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your ministry? Well, I got to say, I'm pretty impressed that you actually said my last name right. Normally, you just call me Danny or Dan the Man or something. <laughs> I call you Russell with one L. That's my name. So I'm kind of impressed, you know. Uh, but no, I just, I got saved back in 2009 in a little church in Alabama and everything. And just from there, the Lord just, you know, just gave me a big burden to just read scripture, study scripture and everything. And so ever since 2009, I just dug and dug and dug into scripture and the Lord allowed me to abuse to found a ministry called Contending for Christ Apologetics. And it's been born, I believe it's about 2012 is when that ministry was founded. And basically with C4C Apologetics and what the Lord just really is calling us to do is to contend for the faith. As Jude verse 3 talks about that we need to earnestly contend for the faith, which was once delivered to the saints. Such is the case that I have a burden to do. I want to go ahead and talk about uh, theological issues inside of the church as well as theological issues outside of the church. And mainly one of the things we do talk about is as far as atheism and naturalism and materialism and humanism and all the other isms out there in the world. How does Christianity provide a better framework to live your life? And what evidences are there of God's existence? And so really with me, just 2009, born again, and then from there, just been studying in the scripture. Don't know everything. We'll never know everything until we get to the millennial kingdom and I'm studying at the feet of Jesus. But just burdened and passionate to just study scripture, theology, talk about it. And I just appreciate you having me on this channel so that we can actually talk about it. I remember in the past when we first met, we spent what, like four or five hours just outside one night just talking about theology and things of God. And that was just amazing. Don't really have that much anymore out here. So I really appreciate you having me on to just yammer away. Man, I appreciate you being here as well. Um, today's show is going to be a follow-up to the last show where I had William Bell on. And we had him on and we discussed uh, area of eschatology and he was he is what is known as a full preterist. But today we have my friend Daniel Weyerbach on who happens to share the same views I do as a futurist. Now, D Daniel, would you mind telling us exactly uh, what is futurism? Certainly. First, I do want to preface all this by saying I am by no means a foremost scholar in regarding to eschatology or even what we're talking about today. I'm just a simple guy that actually studied scripture and came to the conclusion of why I believe what I believe. Now, a lot of thought and study and hours have been put into it, and I believe this is the accurate teaching, and I'm holding to it, but I do want to put out there, I am not the leading expert on this matter. However, comma, futurism. Really, when you're looking at eschatology, there's four main interpretations as far as how to look at what we consider the end times. You have what's called the idealist view. In other words, it's, uh, it's considered a spiritual view, and it just seeks to take the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ and simply allegorize all of it. Then you got the historicist view, 
which seeks the fulfillment of the entirety of the book of Revelation throughout the last 2,000 years or so. A preterist seeks to find fulfillment of the book of Revelation with fulfillment at A.D. 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem by, I think it was, uh, Roman Emperor Titus. In the Futurist, we simply look at the book of Revelation and a lot of other eschatological passages as yet to be fulfilled. Now, in Revelation, it's mainly argued that it's broken down into a couple different groups and areas, whereas one part has been completed, one part is we're in the middle of, and another part is going to be completed. And so that's really what a futurist tends to do as far as the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, is rather than seeing Revelation as symbolic, rather than seeing it as already completed, a futurist sees the events unfolding in Revelation, namely chapter 6 onward, as yet to be fulfilled in the future. Awesome, man. That was awesome. I appreciate that. So I know when I talked to William Bell about preterism, he, he mentioned that there were like partial preterists and different variants of preterism. Now, I know with when it comes to futurism, one of the one of the main, uh, I guess, views concerning uh, futurism is what's known as dispensationalism. Can you briefly explain what dispensationalism is? <laughs> briefly? No, take I your can't time, briefly bro. explain. No, take your time. That's fine. Take your, take all Dispen the time. Dispensationalism is a very broad term nowadays. Uh, in the past, what it used to mean and how it's really evolved over the years is very broad and in, in it all the way up to hyper ultra dispensationalism, which I'm not going to get into that. What I really will explain dispensationalism as is the camp that I really believe in. And really, there's three main areas that I believe dispensationalism seeks to explain or that it's founded upon. One of the first things that dispensationalism teaches or argues is a literal interpretation of Scripture. Now, it's not literal at the expense of context. It's literal like one of the basics of hermeneutics is reading words as literal unless the context clearly dictates otherwise. For instance, in the Song of Solomon, when Solomon is talking about his bride and having a nose like the Tower of Lebanon, we're not to assume that she has this huge, gigantic nose. We understand that's symbolic. That's but what dispensationalism actually teaches is you, you read words as it's literal unless context otherwise. If I were to give you a letter I wrote to my wife, and I'm telling you about how she reminds me of the beauty of like a Camaro or something like that, you're not going to assume that she is very resembling of a Camaro. You're going to assume that it's just a metaphor or a figure of speech. And so dispensationalists, while they hold, and I hold to a literal interpretation, we do not do it to the neglect of context arguing for a symbolic or an allegory interpretation. So that's one of the first things is read literal unless context dictates otherwise. And you can see that when any types of writing today. Another distinction uh, for dispensationalists is how does God deal with mankind? And this is what a lot of people think of dispensationalists as is that mankind and God, there's this relationship in this governing, if you will, that differs from age to age. And you have like the period of innocence with Adam and Eve in the garden. You have the period of government uh, with Noah after the flood. You have the Mosaic law and the period or the age of law. Then you have what's called grace, which after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, we're in the era of grace. And so dispensationalists see that God deals with mankind in different areas, in different ways at different times. 
based upon what's called progressive revelation, which I'll talk about here in a minute. The third main area that I think dispensationalists clearly argue is the fact of Israel and the church are completely separate and distinct. You see, without dispensationalism, you have what's called replacement theology. And replacement theology teaches that when Israel rejected Jesus as the Messiah, that all the blessings and the covenantal promises given to Israel and the Jewish people were taken and transferred to the church. Now, this is a false teaching because if you were to look at the different covenants that God had made with Israel, outside of the Mosaic law or the Mosaic covenant, and I can't remember off the top of my head, there's one other conditional covenant. All the others are unconditional. God pretty much says, I will. The Davidic covenant, unconditional. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant, unconditional. The Palestinian covenant, unconditional. And so if we were to look at God taking those covenants away from Israel and giving them to the church, we would see God breaking his unconditional promises to Israel. And if God can break that unconditional promise to Israel and put those covenants to the church, then why would he not be able to break the promise of us having eternal life through Jesus Christ? And so dispensationalists, one of the strongest things, besides literal interpretation that I believe in with dispensationalism, is the distinction between Israel and the church. God has a very much important plan for Israel and the Jewish people throughout the course of history and yet to be fulfilled. I was talking a little bit about progressive revelation. We see progressive revelation throughout Scripture because in Genesis 3, though Jesus wasn't named, and we don't have much information about Jesus, we see a prophecy of a Messiah that was prom promised to come. Matter of fact, when Eve had her first child, she actually believed that was the Messiah. But we see that slowly progressive revelation came with like Abraham and the father of many nations and how that his seed would bless the entire earth. Slowly throughout the course of history and scripture, we see this revelation being unveiled to the people. And we see it clearly as day reading it in scripture by looking back. But even like the Levitical system, the sacrificial system, it was all a looking forward of a better sacrifice. And Hebrews, author of Hebrews, talks clearly about that. So with dispensationalism, you have that aspect of progressive revelation. And when you have that progressive revelation, it necessitates, number one, that literal interpretation, and it allows for understanding a logical and reasonable understanding of different eschatological doctrines, such as premillennialism and pre-tribulationalism which are the two camps that I hold to. Because millennialism seeks to understand when is Christ setting up the messianic or the millennial kingdom. You might hear me talk about messianic and millennial kingdom. They're one and the same. Millennial kingdom just talks about the fact that it's 1,000 years in length. The messianic kingdom just simply means that Jesus, the Messiah, is the authority and the ruler during that period. So with millennialism, you have amillennialism, premillennialism, and post. And post seeks to explain that Jesus Christ is coming back after the thousand years. Premillennialism talks about he's coming before the thousand years and establishing it. And amillennialism is a spiritual, allegorical understanding of the whole thousand years. Also with tribulation period, you have pre, the rapture prior to, mid, the rapture in the middle, and then you have post, the rapture after. Then there's some nuances like the pre-wrath, mid-trib view as well. But a progressive revelation allows for an understanding in those key doctrines as well. You see, one of the things, I, I think the reason why 
the futurist point of view or the futurist interpretation gets a bad rap is because, like you said, Russ, a lot of people associate dispensationalism with futurism. And while I totally agree, there is not a lot of uh, good things to say about dispensationalists. Matter of fact, uh, there are some really negative things calling people like me a heretic or a false teacher. I'll talk about that here in a minute. Because they believe this was a teaching that was actually invented by John Darby in the 19th century, I believe. So they believe this is just a fairly recent belief. But I would actually argue and posit that early church fathers, even the first couple centuries of the turn of the millennia, we can see a dispensational teaching through them. Now, I'm not going to time, have time to go through each of the actual writings and words, but I will give you the references so that anybody that wants to look into them, by all means, please do. But you have Clement of Alexandria that holds to not only the imminence and the fact that the rapture could occur at any moment and with no event preceding it, which we'll talk about probably here in a little bit, but you have Irenaeus when he's writing in his Against Heresies publication and Justin Martyr in his dialogue with Trypho. There is constant reflection upon the fact that God is dealing with mankind in different ages or different periods or ways, which goes back to the ages of innocence, the age of government, law, grace, things like that. This is a teaching and an understanding that was foundational to the first and second century church, but because dispensational teaching isn't seen back then as far as the vernacular is concerned, we have to remember that words are created, words evolve. The word dispensational has not been created until the late 14th century. And so understanding that while you won't see dinosaur in the Bible because dinosaur was a word that was coined just a few hundred years back, the same thing with dispensation. It wasn't created until about five, six, seven hundred years ago. But if you actually understand what dispensational teaches, you will see those tenets in the first century, second century, third century church fathers and their beliefs and holding on to, to it. So I hope that somewhat clears it up. Like I said, the three main areas is a literal interpretation of scripture. As long as context doesn't dictate symbolism, the fact of there's a difference between how God deals and administers with mankind. And then the third area is the fact that Israel and church are completely separate entities. There's a clear distinction and there's purpose for both of them. And I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit about the rapture and imminence. And so I'll clarify a little bit of that here in a little bit. Man, I really appreciate that. That was uh, pretty comprehensive uh, as well as concise. Uh, <laughs> Dispensationalism is is a very – you can spend a lot of years trying to understand it. One thing I will say that uh, Charles Ryrie is actually one of the people I believe is a leading scholar on this teaching. So if you anybody out there wants to look at the whole gamut, whether it's just regular dispensationalism or hyper-ultra-dispensationalism, Check out his work. He is very comprehensive with it, and I, I think that would be very good for anybody listening out there. Well, that was uh, another thing that you said. You, you mentioned that some people would consider you a, a heretic uh, and that you believe in a heresy, and I know you're going to get to that later. But I just wanted to point out that when I had William Bell on the show, it, it, it was brought to my attention through a friend of mine who happens to be a preterist that a lot of Christians consider him to be a heretic, and they won't talk to him. They'll kind of uh, just— 
disband all kind of fellowship with that person, won't talk with them or anything. Mm-hmm. And to me, as, as this is just my opinion now, uh, to me, a heresy isn't the same as a false doctrine. I consider those things different. I believe that a heresy mm-hmm. is a, a, something that is much more serious that would lead somebody a, away from the truth of the gospel. And, and to me, that is what a heresy is. So I don't consider preterism to be a heresy uh, as 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 far as i'm concerned and i definitely don't consider dispensationalism to be a heresy either now have you always I, go ahead i i have to say so I, I totally agree with you as well uh, as far as the heresy and the uh, being labeled a heretic is concerned uh, i've heard it said and many people out there probably have heard it said too that you have unity in the essentials you have liberty in the non-essentials but you have grace overall and so really as a Christian, we got to look at what is determined essentials to the faith. What is core doctrine? The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ alone for our salvation and eternal life. Who is Jesus, the Emmanuel, that I am who I am, that unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Those things are core to Christianity. So if a Mormon comes, knocks on my door, they believe that Jesus Christ is a spirit brother of Lucifer. I'm going to reject that. That's heresy. But when we're talking about, like you were pointing out, futurism, preterism, historicism, idealism, if we talk about tribulation or millennialism, I would not consider those people, like you said, heretics. I would just say we don't have full knowledge at this point. We can both argue our sides of the camp, but if it doesn't stray us away from the blood of Jesus Christ, then let's just talk about these things rationally because Paul tells us in Timothy that we should study to show ourselves approved. A workman needeth not be in a shame, rightly dividing the word of truth. If I'm saying something wrong and, and uh, false, I want to make sure that I correct it. And I'm sure anybody out there that's teaching wrong things, the same thing, because we got to remember, James says in chapter 3, verse 1, that let not many be masters for in doing so, they'll incur a stricter judgment. And so anything that we're teaching and try to tell other believers, hey, this is what God is saying, we got to make sure that we're honest with the scripture, we're not using biased confirmation, and that we're actually articulating what we truly believe is truth based on laboring and studying and prayer of the word. So I'm glad that you brought it up. I don't think uh, Mr. Bell is a heretic or anything or, or anybody out there that holds this view. I just think they're wrong. <laughs> Amen. Well said, man. At least you're honest, uh, I appreciate that as well. So my next question is is pretty simple, but have you always been a futurist? No, I I mean, I, I don't think so. It's funny because I never knew I was a futurist until I actually learned the terminology, until I understood that, there. hey, people do uh, discern eschatology and specific revelation differently. So when I was just reading and studying scripture— I came to the position of a futurist just by doing basic hermeneutics and studying and cross-referencing different passages from the Old Testament, New Testament, whatever the case is. So it wasn't until after I actually came to my position as far as this issue is concerned that I realized, hey, <laughs> there's a term for it. It's a futurist. And so, you know, when I got saved, you know, I've, I, wasn't, I wasn't in anything, you know, until I got saved. But it took some time and everything. It's not like I looked at all four positions and then came to one I just honestly studied scripture, came to what I believed, and then found out later, hey, that's called a futurist position. And so, I mean, I guess not. Awesome, man. Thanks for that. Um, So what do you think, in your opinion, lies at the root of the opposition to futurism? So, um, So like the main reason why people reject this position, huh? Yeah, exactly. 
you know, like, like sort of referenced before, one of the big things I believe it is, is dispensationalism. Uh, like I alluded to earlier, it's John Gerstner, who is on record, and I quote, says that dispensationalists are a cult and not a branch of the Christian church, end quote, and that we're considered false teachers and heretics. And Arthur Pink even goes as far as claiming that as well. So I think because of the label of dispensationalism, that provides more or less uh, that straight up foundational opposition of this belief. Just for instance, if you were to think somebody is, you know, a Mormon, you just have this presupposition that they're a Mormon because they go to a Mormon church. Well, they may not believe in the Mormon church. They may be getting drugged there as a child or a spouse or whatever the case is. But we're automatically assuming that they're a Mormon and we're presupposing that truth upon them. And so while I don't hold to all the dispensational beliefs and ultra dispensationalism and everything, because people are labeled as dispensationalists, people don't give the view much of a passing glance. They don't really consider it. Now, I'm not saying that's the case with Mr. Bell or anything, but I believe that's one of the main oppositions. But it also seems to be that uh, timing of events. Uh, when you're reading the book of Revelation, and I don't even want to stick in just the book of Revelation. I want to talk about other Old Testament passages eventually. But there's a big difference as far as when do these different camps see the timing of Revelation actually occurring. One of the main rejections, I believe, in the futurist position is a focus on the original audience. Because when scripture is given, uh, it's proper hermeneutics, it's proper methods of interpretation to try to find out what did the original uh, message mean to the original audience. That's key, because if we can understand what it meant to them in their situation and find out what principle is given, then that's how application is derived. But I think the issue that is levied upon is so much focus is on the original uh, generation and the original audience that that is what uh, another catalyst for rejecting the futurism position is. You see the word imminence. The word imminence has been misunderstood uh, quite often throughout the years. Many times, you know, I've held to this view for a while until I really studied it in the different passages. Many times we think of imminence as a timed event, like it's going to happen very soon. But when you're really studying imminence and the idea behind it in Scripture— you really come to the idea that it's not necessarily a timing event. It's more about, are there any signs or events that need to occur prior to said event to happen? And when you really look at the rapture and you look at the second coming of Christ, you see there's a huge difference. For instance, we see nothing stating that the rapture could occur at any moment. When you study rapture passages, it could happen at any moment as uh, lightning uh, goes from the east and the west, different passages. But when you study the second coming of Jesus Christ, well, you know right off the bat that as Daniel prophesied in chapter 9, that the abomination of desolation has to occur. There has to be a temple. We know in Jerusalem today that there is no temple there. And so we know for the abomination of desolation to occur, and that has to happen prior to the second coming of Christ, that a temple has to be built. But when you're studying the rapture, when you're looking at the imminence of the rapture, it's not talking about, oh, it can happen in the next 500 years. No, it's talking about it can occur simply at any moment without any preceding events. So that's another thing. When you're looking at imminence and the actual timing of these things, that's a big focus. And I believe that that focus is miswarranted. 
But I also believe that there are some holes that uh, people believe are found in a futurist position. For instance, Matthew chapter 20, Matthew chapter 16 is one of the verses. In Matthew chapter 16, in verse number 28, Jesus says, There be some standing here which shall not taste of death, till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And a lot of people look at that and they say, See, there's going to be some people that are literally standing there while Jesus is making this statement that will be seeing the kingdom fulfilled. And you see, that's where eminence comes in as far as a timing aspect. But when we're actually looking at this and we actually compare it to Mark's chapter, because Mark is a parallel passage as well as Luke chapter nine, we see that this is clearly a reference to the transfiguration of Jesus. You see, Matthew, many scholars argue that Matthew was written thematically. So when somebody's studying through the book of Matthew and they compare it to the book of Luke, because Luke tells us things were written in a, in a sequential order. Matthew and Luke aren't going to line up. And why is that? Because a lot of people understand that Matthew's audience was primarily Jewish. And with the Jewish people, they are a chronological, sequential type of people. They are a thematic people group. And so with that being the case, Matthew 16 and Matthew 17 is part of a theme. It's part of the theme because right after uh, Jesus makes the statement in verse 28, he, 17 verse 1 jumps right into the transfiguration. Six days pass transfiguration occurs as part of that same theme. And when Jesus says in verse 28 that there's some standing here that will actually see the glory of God, I personally hold, again, with a literal interpretation in the thematic uh, outline of Matthew, that Peter, James, and John did see the Shekinah glory upon the Mount of Transfiguration. It was literally fulfilled six days after Jesus made that statement in chapter 16. That was not a fulfillment of Revelation and eschatology. It was a fulfillment that those three individuals would clearly see the Shekinah glory of Jesus when he veiled his deity in front of them. Another passage I believe some people believe they have a hole in the futurist dispensational view is Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And I'm going to turn there real quick, because this is very important as well. Understanding Jewish context, understanding rabbinical teachings and traditions, understanding the first century culture in Israel is vital and paramount to doing these deep dive studies within Scripture. For in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it says, Now after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. You see, a lot of people believe that the fact that the kingdom was near, this is a timing thing. And that when Jesus is offering this messianic kingdom, you got to understand what's going on with the Jews and with Israel. You see... Jesus was honestly offering the kingdom, and if the Israeli people, the Jewish leadership and nation, accepted the offer of the Messiah, Jesus being Messiah, and they repented, they they didn't stop doing sins. No, that's not what repentance is. They changed their mind on who they believed Jesus was, and now they change their mind in believing, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. You see, if they would have done that, Jesus would have established his messianic kingdom. But we know in the Old Testament passages that they won't. They reject in that we have what's considered the time of the Gentiles. You see this in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, where there's reference and, and focus on the 70 weeks of Daniel, and there's this breakage, there's this gap. 
But even if you were to turn to Zechariah chapter 11, that chapter talks about the rejection of the Messiahship of Jesus. And in Isaiah chapter 27, verse 9, there's a fact, a prophecy that the iniquity of Jacob needs to be purged. And what's amazing is when you look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, there's six purposes of the tribulation period. None of them have to do with America. None of them have to do with anybody except for the Jewish people in Jerusalem. Because that's what the author said. It says, these weeks have to do with thy people and thy city, Jews in Jerusalem. One of the things that has to happen, one of those six purposes, is purging the singular iniquity of Jacob, or Israel, that's referenced in Isaiah 27. And what is that? That's in reference to what's called the unpardonable sin in Matthew 12. And Paul goes into much detail about the implications of this through Romans chapter 9 through 11, and the spiritual blindness of the Jews, and how the Gentiles are grafted in, and how the Gentiles are actually used by God to bring the Jews to jealousy and repentance. That's what those three chapters are about. And so, matter of fact, just this is free for you. I personally, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, where it says, uh, uh, for if you confess by your mouth that Jesus is Lord, uh, you will be saved. I don't believe that's a reference to gospel. I believe that's a reference to the Jewish people acknowledging in the end that Jesus is the Messiah. They will vocalize it and call and petition for the Messiah to come back. Just like Old Testament says, I believe it's in Zechariah, that they will look upon me whom they have pierced, and they will call for me. I believe that's what Romans 10, 9, and 10 is actually talking about, the Jewish leadership recognition in the end of the Messiahship of Jesus, which is back to Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Repent and believe. What? the Messiahship of Jesus. The unpardonable sin, they reject the Jesus as a Messiah. But in the end, they will see the need for his Messiahship back in his uh, back, and then we will have the Messianic kingdom. And so when you're asking the question as far as the opposition of futurism, I think it ties into, again, the label. We're very much label people. And if we don't like a label, we're not going to like the teachings. Dispensationalism, the label, drives a fact, a wedge between uh, looking into the teachings. Then an, another one is the timing, the understanding of imminence doesn't only have to deal with a time frame, but it has to deal with events, sequential order of events. And then the other thing, Matthew sixteen twenty eight, the transfiguration, and Mark chapter 1, verse 14, as far as uh, the establishment of messianic kingdom, those are clearly a reference when you're understanding scripture and reading it. It is my belief that the Jewish context plays a vital key role in making sure we have proper understanding and interpretation. So all that tangent, I believe those are the reasons why people reject. I could be wrong, but dealing with preterists and doing some research about it as well, I believe those are the main things that they hold on to. Man, thank you for that. That was, uh, you're, you're just, uh, just going and going, aren't you? Man? That was, that was pretty good. I appreciate it. Sorry, man. I got my no, second black tea. <laughs> no, go ahead and take another sip. Um, I just <laughs> want to take this, uh, take a moment to just remind those who are listening and I want to encourage and charge everybody listening to go and open up your Bible, pray and ask God, uh, to, to allow the Holy Spirit to guide you through the scripture. Open up some commentaries. You know, look at these views for yourself. Don't just go and watch a YouTube mm. video or go and ask your friend what they think. Really seek these things out for yourself and test 
these things that both uh, mm. our friend and brother William Bell and, and my friend and brother Dan, Daniel Weyerbach are saying. Test them and put them to the test and see if you think that they line up with Scripture. Test them for yourself. Don't take our word for it. Now, the next question I have for you is <clears throat> what are some Scriptures that you personally find difficult to explain in regards to futurism? Honestly, none. I mean, I, I personally don't believe there's any uh, passages that are difficult to explain. Again, you, you got to realize that with a dispensational view, uh, using what I believe is proper hermeneutic methodology, understanding systematic theology, and having to consult other passages, other books, uh, not books like extra biblical books, but other books of the Bible, like Old Testament passages, other prophets. I believe if we were to study these things out with those things in mind, I really don't find many other verses that are troublesome. Now, while I'm not going to say that I've studied the entirety of Scripture, I'm pretty positive that if someone were to present a passage from Scripture, not a philosophy, not a teaching, a passage from Scripture, if you give me a, a little bit of time, some time in word, some time in prayer, I'm sure with understanding hermeneutical methodology, dispensational view, as far as systematic theology, I would have clarity on that verse and would be able to explain it and articulate. So for me, I don't really see any troublesome passages for futurism, but what I do see are some troubling passages for our opponents of futurism, uh, futurists, not necessarily just preterists, but, but even historicists and idealists. Uh, for instance, if you were to look at, now, I hope it's okay with you, but I'm going to navigate my Bible a little bit. Go ahead, man. So one of the things is when you're looking at the six purposes in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 24, you have 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy city. And here are the six purposes. Number one, to finish the transgression. Now, it's a singular transgression. That's, that's quite interesting. Number two, to make an end of sins. Number three, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Number four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. That's going to be key right there. Number five, to seal up uh, vision and prophecy. And number six, to anoint the most holy. Out of those six uh, purposes, there's two of them that are very, uh, for me as a futurist position, very clear in being able to articulate and, and you know understand. Anybody that doesn't hold a futurist position, I don't how, see how they could explain, number one, this singular iniquity of Israel and the Jewish people. Now when, and I'll talk about this here in a minute probably, hopefully, when we look at the unpardonable sin, we see this singular iniquity of Isaiah 27, verse 9, and the finishing of the transgression, a singular transgression here in 924, as the rejection of the Messiahship of Jesus. And we know today there are plenty of Jews. Matter of fact, the majority of Jews do not believe Jesus is the Messiah. Why? Because they were still under Roman rule and he didn't free them. So they're still looking for their Messiah. That's one. The second one out of these six purposes is the fact where it's purpose to bring in everlasting righteousness. Now, again, when we're talking about the 70 weeks, and from what I understand, the historicists and the preterists believe even these 70 weeks are complete. They just completed either at 70 AD or some time ago. The, his, the idealist looks at this as symbol, symbolic. 
I don't understand how we can argue that everlasting righteousness was brought in with the completion of this tribulation period from any other view. Because if you just look at the news today, you look at, you look at your kids today. Do you think there's everlasting righteousness with the way some of our kids act? I mean, they're just born sinners. We all are. And so from a futurist standpoint, we can articulate that these six purposes are completed after the tribulation period at that 70th week, because after that period, Jesus says he clearly puts death, hell in the lake of fire, as well as Satan, the false prophet, and the Antichrist in the lake of fire. Then we have this utopian-type society with everlasting righteousness because there is no more sin. You have the great white throne judgment. I don't understand how they can get around those two purposes of Daniel 9. But it doesn't stop there because I know when you're talking about preterism, historicism, and idealism, it's really focused on revelation. So one of the things, and I haven't heard the arguments for these, so maybe there's sufficient arguments. I think Daniel 9 is a you know, nail in the coffin, but still, uh, be with me. Revelation chapter 7, and I believe it's also chapter 11 as well. Uh, may not be, it's another chapter, maybe it's first chapter 14. Yes, 14. But the 144,000 Jews that are witnesses, I don't know how these were fulfilled, whether prior to 70 AD or in the course of the last 2,000 years. It's funny because when we had a Jehovah Witness come knock on our door a while back and, and I was talking to them, I was asking them if they were trying to be one of these 144,000 witnesses. I was like, you know, let's talk about this. Because in Revelation chapter 7, it says that these 144,000 are 12,000 from the tribes of Judah. And then when you look into it more, you find out that these are Jewish virgin males. These were black African women. I was like, there's no way you can be one of these 144,000 people because you're not a virgin Jewish male from the tribe of, you know, one of those 12 tribes. And so even from the Preterist Historicist view, I don't understand how that has happened. But not only that, Revelation chapter 11, you have the two witnesses who I believe is Enoch and Elijah because they were two that didn't taste death. These people are prophesying. They are witnessing. They are killed. Their bodies are left in the street for a couple of days. And then what happens? They are raised, they're physically resurrected, and they're ascended up into heaven. I'm sure if that happened, that would have been documented somewhere, whether the first century or whether the second millennium, whatever the case is. But nowhere do we have any tale or legend of these two people doing this, witnessing in Jerusalem, dying, being left on the street, and then rising again. But then another thing that I think is a troublesome passage for any opposition of futurists is the defiling of the temple. When you were to read in Daniel chapter 9, you read in Daniel chapter 11, you read in Matthew chapter 24, you clearly see a literal defiling of the temple where that someone like Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, comes to file the temple, whether that defiling is sacrificing a pig on the altar or whatever the case is, which I believe that's probably similar to that. We don't have that in the course of history. And right now we don't have a temple. So after AD 70, there's no way the historic point of view could have occurred because there's no temple to do this abomination of desolation in the temple on the altar seat for this to occur. Then remember we were talking about unconditional covenants and the whole replacement theology idea. Right. I believe that the other views 
unbeknownst to them maybe, they have to agree with replacement theology and the fact that God removed those promises from Israel and put it on the church, or they just ignore those covenants altogether. Because one of the covenants is the Davidic covenant, where David is going to be on the throne and lead Israel during that messianic kingdom. Another unconditional covenant is the land covenant. The land covenant that the Jews would have the entirety of their land back. And they would be living there. Well, not all the Jews live there, and they don't even have the entirety of the land yet, and they never have. But then you have the new covenant, where part of the new covenant is that God is writing on the hearts of the Jews, and they will no more need to teach anybody of Jesus, because they would all know Jesus. And this is found in Jeremiah chapter 31, I believe. And we know that Jews don't believe in Jesus, and some Jews don't even know who Jesus is. And so I don't understand how those are argued from any view other than a futurist. But then it doesn't stop there. A preterist and a historicist would have to argue that the millennial kingdom has already passed. And so what happens in Revelation chapter 20 when the millennial kingdom passes? It's the great white throne judgment. Because at the great white throne judgment, we read that unbelievers have resurrection, and then they're judged based off their works. But regardless of the outcome of that judgment, they're still cast in the lake of fire. Now, we know because death and hell are cast in the lake of fire in Revelation chapter 20, we still die today. And I'm sure we've all been afflicted of the pain of death of loved ones that we have. We know after the great white throne judgment, there will be no more death. There will be no more tears. God will wipe them away. That happens after the millennial kingdom. This is a huge problem for a preterist and a historicist. Another thing is Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet will be cast in the lake of fire. But we know there's still evil. We know there's still wickedness in the earth. They can't get around that. There's no real way, logically and consistently, in my belief, to stand on complete fulfillment of Revelation from a preterist point of view. So, as far as other scriptures I find difficult to explain for futurism, honestly, and I'm not trying to be arrogant, but through countless hours of study... No. Proper methodology of hermeneutics? No. But I do find plenty of problems, uh, plenty of holes in any other view outside of futurism. Man, I really appreciate that. Um, You hit on some points that uh, our our brother William Bell had made. Uh, You touched on some of those. And once I upload these uh, to the podcast, uh, I'm going to go ahead and link both of you guys each other's uh, episodes so you can check each other out and uh, see what you think about each other's points. Now, All right, definitely. My next question is somewhat of a not only just a personal question because I've struggled with these uh, passages as well growing up, um, but this is one of the main things um, as a as far as a point of contention regarding futurism. So, when you see passages in the Bible that refer to uh, this generation shall not pass to all these things be fulfilled, things like that. How do you mm-hmm. interpret those passage passages? Oh, that's, a, that's a really good question. You know, I, I think it all goes to, pro- again, all this goes to proper hermeneutics. And one thing that I learned from a church that we no longer attend just because of disagreements is he had made reference to what's called a twenty twenty rule. Whenever you're reading a verse, you want to look at generally 20 verses before it and 20 verses after it. I'm sure we've all heard of uh, what's called this immediate context, surrounding context, book context, Bible context. But you also want to make sure you're 
You're focusing on the cultural context, the historical context, the literary context, what genre. This is why I believe, uh, this is one of the reasons why I believe some people don't really study scripture like, like we should, is because to truly study scripture and to actually put together a commentary, there's a lot of labor that has to be involved. Not only understanding all those contexts that I've explained, but then you have the grammatical context. You know, we got to understand the words. We have to understand the parsing. We have to understand if it's present, if it's past, if it's indicative mood, if it's aorist tense. We have to understand all these things. And so it is very laborious to go ahead and understand on a deeper level some passages. And so I think that's, you know, one of the key things is a proper method of hermeneutics. But what's interesting about the phrase of the quote unquote, this generation, it is only found in my study in the New Testament within the Gospels and only one time in the book Acts. It's not found in any Pauline epistles. It's not found in uh, any uh, writings of John or James or Jude outside the gospel. Matter of fact, I don't even think it's found in the book of John. You only find it in the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so that's pretty interesting right there. And so when we understand what are the gospels, well, the gospels are simply a biography, a biographical sketch of the life, the person, the message and ministry of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so that's key to, I believe, understanding this generation. In most all cases, I personally believe it's in reference to a specific generation that was alive during the earthly ministry of Jesus. And unpartable sin, I'm actually going to get on to the unpartable sin that is vital, and that is key to understanding the generation. It's the same thing. Remember when Jesus told Peter, when he had his great confession of faith, Jesus said, I will give you the keys to the kingdom. You see, Catholics look at that and think that Peter is the first pope, and then you have papal secession. Well, when you actually look at it from a Jewish lens, and you look at the different people groups, at that time, you have the Jews, you have the Samaritans, and you have the Gentiles. Whenever you see the Holy Spirit coming into contact with one of those people groups for the first time and them speaking the gift of tongues as authentication, it has to be Peter that is there for them to receive the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence and the speaking of tongues for authentication, the signs of an apostle. You see it in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. You see it in Acts chapter 8 with the Samaritans. And you see it in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. Understanding the Jews and the culture and the context is vital. And that puts me on the unpardonable sin. This is a teaching that I never really heard the unpardonable sin until I got saved. And then thankfully when I got saved, I was in a very strong Jewish-based, Bible-based teaching church in Really, when I first heard the unpardonable sin, I, I really jumped into this belief I'm about to share. But I know a lot of people believe that it's murder, or maybe it's suicide, or maybe it's continual, uh, you know, lack of faith and trust in Jesus as Savior. If all of those, I, I would subscribe to that last one, you know. But it's much more than that when we're looking at it contextually. Again, like I said, this generation is only found in the synoptic gospels. And so what I want to do is I want to look at each of these passages. Matthew chapter 12 is the first one that I want to actually stop in. So let me uh, get there real quick. Matthew chapter 12 has a couple parallel 
uh, passages, uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 12 and 38, and then you have Luke chapter 11, verses 29 through 32. But in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41 through 45, uh, actually we'll start at uh, verse 39, actually. Jesus says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. There shall no sign be given to it but the sign of Jonah, uh, the prophet Jonas. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation, and they shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, a greater Jonah is here. The queen of south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, for she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walks through dry place seeking rest and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he is come, he findeth empty, swept, and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. You see, in that passage, that's really the the beginning of what's called the unpardonable sin. And the unpardonable sin is clearly in reference to, when you study it from a Jewish standpoint, and even if you were to look in, I believe it's Matt, Mark chapter 8, where you see the fact of the unpardonable sin is the fact that they disbelieved in the Jesus being the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And that's really a catalyst to this word generation that's being used, because you don't really find it prior to this event. If you were to look at the chronology of Jesus's life and you get to the unpardonable sin prior to, you don't really find this word. But at the unpardonable sin and afterwards, you see this word used frequently after this event. And so when you're looking at the unpardonable sin, I have a couple of videos on uh, my YouTube page, uh, channel, if you will, uh, C4C Apologetics. Go check it out. There's one I interview a pastor, one that I actually go in depth with slides and, and uh, scripture explaining this idea. But you see that they rejected him. They rejected the messianic signs that Jesus did. There were three messianic miracles that the rabbis taught could only be done by the Messiah when he comes. One of them was healing a leper. One of them was healing a man that was mute or, or uh, a man that was possessed and was mute. What the rabbis taught was the fact of if you, someone was possessed, you needed to have the name of the demon to free that individual and to cast the demon out. So Jesus here at the unpardonable sin casted out a mute demon-possessed man. And that's why people react to saying, this must be the son of David, a title of a Messiah. And they rejected that right there. The third messianic miracle would have been uh, healing a man that was born blind. So this is a catalyst to Jesus's ministry, uh, to this word gener uh, generation. I encourage you, study out the unpardonable sin from that Jewish perspective, and you're really going to understand what it truly is. And remember that kingdom that Jesus offered in Mark chapter 1? That kingdom that he offered in Mark 1? John said, Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at, at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The repentance was the fact of Jesus being the Messiah. But you know from reading scripture and from looking at history that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the other seas, well, not all of them, but the majority of them, rejected that 
put him on the cross, but we know the Old Testament foretold that, and then three days later, he would rise again and ascend into heaven. So the first one, when we're talking about this generation, we're seeing that Jesus is clearly condemning that earthly generation that is living with them. Why? Because he said, there's a greater Jonah here, there's a greater Solomon here, and that greater person is Jesus. And if those Gentiles, Nineveh, and that Gentile, the Queen of Sheba, repented, these Jewish leadership people, they did not repent at the preaching of Jesus the Messiah. They rejected it. And this is what really is a catalyst to Jesus's ministry. That's really the first one. Uh, but I encourage you, I don't have all the time right now to really expound upon the Impartable Sin. Check out C4C Apologetics YouTube. I got a couple videos out there. But I do still want to look at these other passages of generation because maybe I can provide a little bit of clarity. Another one is in Matthew, I believe it's chapter 11. Matthew 11, verse 16. He says, Jesus says, Whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows. This is a reference, again, contextually looking at the surrounding immediate context of that earthly generation. You got Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23 and verse number 36. We have the, Jesus has mentioned, Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Now again, I will hold that this generation is in reference to that generation that's living with Jesus during his earthly ministry. But what is all these things? Well, when you read through it, when you read the passage and you look at the condemnation and you look at the judgment that Jesus pronounces, it's in reference to the A.D. 70 temple destruction. And Jesus even says in the temple that you see these stones, I tell you that not one stone will be left upon another, but destroy this body, this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. This is a reference to the coming destruction of A.D. 70 Jerusalem because of their unpardonable sin. So in verse 36 here in Matthew chapter 23, I do hold that that is that specific earthly generation with the Messiah. Then you get to Matthew chapter 24. 24 verse 34 it says, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass until all these things be fulfilled. This is also uh, paralleled in Mark 13.30 and Luke 21.32. You see, this is where I believe a uh, uh, fallacy of equivocation really comes in. You see, fallacy of equivocation is simply meaning that a word is used the same way every time you see it. This is, this is seen like, for instance, the word gospel. The gospel isn't always in reference to the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ when we see it in Scripture. Or the word salvation. The word salvation isn't always used as far as eternal salvation. Matter of fact, most times it's used as far as physical salvation. And the same thing as fire. I was charged before as as believing that fire is not a bad it fire is, you know, not bad. People charge me with the fact when I was talking about some sort of fire that I believe that fire is good. But when you read in scripture, there are things such as the refiner's fire. And that we are tested by fire and we're coming out pure, things like that. It's a positive thing going through a test. So it's not always a matter of wickedness, judgment, things like that. This is the fallacy of equivocation. 
So when one were to look at the word generation, you were to look at the range of meanings, how this word is commonly used or how this word is used, period, during that time. One of the ways it can be used is that people group that's living right there and then at the, at the time of Jesus. But another way it could actually be used is just talking about a people group, period, a nation. And so when we're looking at the Olivet Discourse, and this is where systematic theology comes in, when we're looking at that as the nation, this is a promise that Jesus is making. We look at it as really it's a negative thing. And yeah, I mean, it's true. Olivet Discourse is a very scary thing. But it's also a promise that this generation or this nation, this people group, will not pass until all those things be fulfilled. This is a wonderful promise of our Savior, that the Jewish people will not ever be exterminated. We see this with the Holocaust. We see this through the Ottoman Empire and Muslim, the rise of Islam. The Jews will never be exterminated. God has always kept a remnant of Jewish people. We see it in the book of Kings when Elijah was complaining when he was running from Jezebel and stuck in the cave, says, I'm the only one here. And God reveals the fact that, no, I there are seven other thousand that haven't bowed their knee to Baal. And we even see a, a remnant in Revelation chapter 12, I believe it is, where this remnant is divinely protected by God at a place called Basra and Petra. And that that remnant is the one, remember I was talking about Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10? That remnant, I hold, will be the ones that recognize the Messiahship of Jesus. So in Matthew 24, 34, and Mark 13, 30, and Luke 21, 32, when Jesus is talking about this generation will not pass away until you see all these things and they be fulfilled, I believe when, when you're looking at the fallacy of equivocation, you can get a wrong idea that he's talking about this people group right then and there. But when you understand one of the meanings can be the nation itself, this is a wonderful promise that Israel will never be snuffed out. Again, a reason why I hold to the rejection of replacement theology. Then you got Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, verse 50, I believe it is, and 51. So we got that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zacharias. Now that's interesting. The blood of Abel to the blood of Zacharias. What's interesting about that is when we think of martyrs, we, we look at the Old Testament books in, in the uh, order of the Old Testament canon, if you will, starting with Genesis and ending with Malachi. But in the Hebrew writings, it actually begins with Genesis and ends with Second Chronicles. But unless you understand a Jewish context, you're not going to understand why is he pointing out Abel and why is he pointing out Zacharias? Well, he's pointing that out because that bookends the Hebrew Old Testament of Genesis and Second Chronicles. That's where Jewish understanding comes to play. But we're not talking about that right now, so I'm going to stop on my side note. But he says, you know, the blood of Abel and the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple, verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. I personally hold the fact that this is Jesus' uh, condemnation of that Jewish generation living with him because it was that generation that rejected his Messiahship, which is the catalyst of not only the tribulation period, 
but everything else. The the problems that Israel went through, just like when they went into Babylonian captivity, it's now the reason why God is using the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy. But then you got a Luke chapter 16, and we're almost done with the generations. But you got Luke chapter 16, verse 8. He says, The Lord commanded the unjust steward because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. You see, I hold that this is in reference. If you were to look at these parables, one of the key questions you have to ask when trying to understand parables is, what question is Jesus answering when he talks about parables? Because Jesus gives a parable when he's answering a question or rebutting something. And if you were to go all the way back to Luke chapter 15, verse 2, it says the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And he spoke this parable unto them, saying, and then he breaks out into a few different parables. So Jesus is starting these parables because they're accusing him and having a problem with him hanging out with sinners. And so when he's talking about this generation here in Luke uh, 16, verse 8, he's contrasting the righteous Gentile, like the centurion, the Roman centurion. He's contrasting him with the likes of Caiaphas. And the people like him that rejected him. He said that you're from the sons of Abraham, children of Abraham, but you reject and you don't believe. And, and uh, But you have this Gentile over here, and he does believe. This is a contrast between the, the rejection of the Messiah by the Jews and the acceptance of the Messiah by the Gentiles. The last one I believe it is, and y'all could uh, check me uh, if I'm wrong, is Luke 17, verse 25. It says, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. Again, this is a prophecy that Jesus made that he knew he was going to be rejected of those Jewish people during that time. It was that generation during Jesus's earthly ministry that rejected him being the Messiah, and namely that event was done through what's called the unpardonable sin when Jesus healed and exercised a mute possessed man. And they said, no, he did, did this by the power of Beelzebub or the power of Satan. And so this one right here, he's talking about this generation reject is going to reject me. And, and so out of all these generations that are used, if we try to equivocate this word and say it's always the same way, we're going to have this one verse it doesn't really make sense. But when we understand that words have a range of meanings like spring, a season, a coil, jumping, then we can understand, okay, it's using used differently here in that that's not talking about a people group, but that's a blessed promise of the of the protection and just the continuation of the Jewish people. And so when you're wanting to know how I would actually interpret passages according to this generation, I would have to look at the context. I would have to look at what the word means in the original language by using lexicons. And then what is the range of meanings? What are the different possibilities? Because it's not always going to be the same. And when we believe it's going to be the same, we're going to come off with some some unbiblical ideas and views. So, Awesome. Man, that was another good answer. I appreciate that as well. So what do you consider to be a weakness or a flaw concerning the futurist interpretation of prophecy? 
In other words, do you do you feel that there are any gaping holes in the futurist view? Honestly, again, I, I really don't want to sound arrogant and, and correct me if, if you feel like I am, but I don't really believe there are any weaknesses or flaws in a futurist understanding of eschatology. I believe the weaknesses and flaws are really brought on because people uh, – Either A, and I'm not saying this is everybody, don't really know how to properly understand uh, Scripture and interpret it. Uh, I have some videos out there on the C4C channel as well that talks about the flat earth. And I, I don't care about what science says. I don't care what extra biblical books really say. What does God's word say about the flat earth? And what I found out when I'm looking at Rob Skiba's stuff and Mark Sargent and some other people is that it, there's a gross misinterpretation of Scripture to hold to that view. And so some of the weaknesses and flaws as far as a futurist understanding, I believe, is just from people not understanding how to interpret Scripture. But I also uh, would argue that the Jewish context is highly missed out, as well as dispensationalism. Get get over the fact of dispensationalism is a negative word, and ultra-dispensationalist, and, well, the early church fathers didn't teach that. Get off of that and actually look in those tenets and those teachings and understand the context of uh, the Jewish people and the culture of the time. I believe once those are understood, you will come to this realization. But even if you don't really understand that, if you just read Scripture as a book, and you don't even really know how to interpret Scripture accurately, I would argue that you would come away with a futurist understanding uh, as far as eschatology is concerned anyways. It's when we're trying to make things say certain things, where we deviate, or when we're looking at history, and we're trying to plug history into passages forcefully when it, it leads into uh, eisegesis. So weaknesses and flaws, as far as futurism is concerned, I, I don't personally believe there are. Again, I'm not trying to be arrogant mm -hmm. or prideful, but many hours of studying this, I believe it's a very sound doctrine. All right, man. Well, that was my uh, very arrogant friend, Daniel Weibach. I'm going to go ahead and have to <laughs> kick him off the show now. <laughs> no. You do you. <laughs> no, man. Uh, no, I don't think you're being arrogant. If you believe it, that that is the case, then that's what you believe. I don't think... Uh, you're being haughty or arrogant in your attitude or in your heart. So uh, thanks for sharing that. Now, do you believe in a future bodily resurrection of believers? And can you explain why you believe what you believe? Yes, I mean, most, most definitely I do. Uh, when we're looking at the unpardonable sin and everything again, I mean, a lot of things really track back to that momentous uh, event. I think it was, I think it was C.S. Lewis, maybe it was Billy Graham. I, I some great uh, scholar preacher said that the single greatest event in mankind was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by far, I would wholeheartedly agree with that and everything. And so when Jesus said at the unpardonable sin, that as uh, Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. When we're looking at the resurrection, and Jesus is making that proclamation that if we see that Jesus was in whatever fish, whale, whatever we want to believe it was, and that he was there for three days, three nights, then he was vomited up and he was alive, then we would believe that Jesus is using that as a picture of what he's going to do with the resurrection. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that if Christ hadn't risen, then our faith in vain and we are men most miserable. 
And so the whole crux of Christianity is the resurrection of Christ. If anybody can prove the resurrection story account is false or fictitious or made up, then you would dismantle the entirety of Christendom. But that has not been the case, and I would argue it will never be the case because that tomb was empty 2,000 years ago, and it is still empty today. And all the theories, whether it's the swoon theory, the hallucination theory, the stolen body theory, whatever theory they want to make up, they're easily refuted against. So as far as the physical resurrection, I would look at Jesus promised us that we would rise as well. And I would argue that we would rise in a similar fashion as Jesus did when he was in the grave, if you will, for three days and three nights, and he physically rose and had a glorified body. Paul says that in the twinkling of an eye, this incorruption or this corruption will put on incorruption. And so I would articulate that the glorification is a very scriptural teaching. Uh, I also think of passages like First Thessalonians chapter four. Uh, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so with them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Then he says that in verse 16, Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, we which are alive shall remain, uh, and in remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So here I believe Paul is very, again, dispensationalism, literal interpretation and reading the scripture, that Paul is saying that the dead in Christ will be raised, and so those physical bodies will be raised. And then you have also the people that are here during the rapture, they will be raised. And if you ever seen the Left Behind movie as well, you see the, the videography of what that possibly might look like. But then you also have Daniel chapter 12, verse number 2. And if I could get there real quick, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Chapter 12 is the, uh, the closing of the prophecies of Daniel. He says, Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so even here, Daniel is prophesying that in the end, they will awake and rise and resurrect. I believe that a physical resurrection is a clear teaching of Scripture. And I, I don't see how... Uh, anybody could actually get around that teaching. So again, it doesn't matter if you're cremated or you're buried. If God can create the entire universe out of nothing, then surely he could put your molecules together again from a cremation and have you to have a physical body and a glorified body. Awesome. So, <clears throat> which kind of leads us to the next question. What happens to a believer in Christ after they die? And would you mind uh, making an attempt to describe what that experience will be like? Oh, that's a good question. That's a good question. Uh, uh, first, you, you know, I thought of this uh, phrase that uh, when you had asked about physically bodily resurrection, I forget who said this and everything. I just wanted to plug it and everything. I've heard it said where you can be born once and die twice or be born twice and die once. And I bring that up because, uh, if you're born once, you have your physical birth, but you will die twice. You will die at the physical death, and then you will ultimately have this eternal death in the lake of fire, so your death, second death is what Revelation calls it. But if you're born again, you're born physically, and then you're born spiritually, and that means you're only going to have one death. 
that means you're only going to have a physical death and that we're promised that we're not going to die again after that unless rapture comes. So I just remember that quote uh, when you asked me this question. But as far as what happens to a believer after they die, that's an interesting question because I would have to look at when did this person die? You know, was this before the rapture or was this after the rapture? Uh, I would really have to consider even during uh, this uh, after the second coming and during the millennial kingdom. I believe that there's passages in Isaiah that talks about that there's actually still going to be death in the millennial kingdom. Uh, so uh, you got you got to ask the question as far as when does this person die? But if we're just looking at a general uh, understanding of what happens to a Christian when they die, like if I were to die, just boom, right now I'm dead. I believe that they would bury my body. Well, hopefully uh, I, I was joking with my wife before I was like, hey, when I die. I want you to stuff my body. I want you to make sure that my arms and legs move, that I'm like an action figure, and that you could just put me in whatever poses you want, whether I salute or whether I wave my hand or whatever. And so I'm sure when I die, I even if I put it in my will, which I joking, uh, jokingly said I would do that, uh, I, I will most likely be buried. So my physical body would be buried. But my soul would go with heaven, would go into heaven. And I would just stay there in heaven until the glorification of the body. And I would argue that when Jesus comes back in Revelation chapter 19, that all those people, I know there's a, a debate whether all people come back or only uh, those martyr saints from the tribulation period will come back. But in Revelation 19, when Jesus comes back on his white horse, horse, <laughs> when he comes back on his white horse, I believe that all of us would come back as well. And then from there, we'd have the Messianic kingdom for a thousand years. But what's interesting is not necessarily what happens to a Christian when they die, because, I mean, really, I would just argue that, you know, the physical body goes into the grave, cremated, stuffed, whatever the case is, and the soul lives with Jesus forever. Jesus does say in John chapter 14 that uh, he's preparing a mansion no, it's not a mansion. A mansion in the Greek is simply just like a dwelling place, a home, something like that. And so we will be there in heaven. But a lot of people have this idea that heaven is the end goal. A lot of people believe that we're going to be in heaven for eternity. And that's totally not the case. Heaven is just a temporary abode, just like hell is just a temporary abode. You see, because in Revelation 22, the new Jerusalem comes down out of, out of heaven adorned as a bride. And then we see that God lives with man, tabernacles with man here on earth with the new heavens and a new earth. And so what's fascinating is the view that uh, heaven is not the end goal. Heaven is a temporary uh, hotel, if you will, uh, while we're waiting on this millennial kingdom in this new heaven, in this new earth. So when I die as a believer, my body's going to be in the, well, hopefully it'll be stuffed and my wife can move me however she wants to move me and everything. <laughs> but my soul will be with Jesus. Uh, I'll ask him a bunch of uh, questions that I have. I'll see some loved ones. Uh, who knows? Maybe I'll see some people that possibly God used me to be influential. Uh, Ray Boltz uh, has a fascinating song out there called Thank You uh, that talks about when he a person died, he went to heaven. And then while in heaven... So many people came up to him and said, hey, when when you were praying uh, during my Sunday school class, I received Jesus as Savior. Or, hey, when you gave a little bit of money in that offering plate for the missions, 
I got saved because you gave. And so I believe that all of us, if we're serving the Lord, then we're going to have people come up to us and say, you have no idea who I am, but because of you and your ministry or your words or your actions or whatever, you got me saved. You allowed me to find Jesus. And so I think it's going to be a wonderful time uh, when we get there. Awesome. Hey, real quick, uh, would you elaborate on what a white horse is? <laughs> a white horse? Well, a white horse is simply a horse that has reached a, uh old geriatric age. They lost their teeth and everything. And, and horses, <laughs> if, if you know anything about the structure of a horse's mouth and jaw, they can't really receive dentures like a human can. And so whenever a horse loses all their teeth, their tongue gets stuck to their gums. And it, it, it's a horse, of course, because no one can talk to a horse, of course. Right? <laughs> Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you, Russell. <laughs> <laughs> With one L. So, <laughs> do you, which uh, next question is pretty serious, um, on a more serious note, do you believe in a literal and eternal place of torment um, for the unbeliever? You know, that, you would think that would be a hard question, but, I mean, truth is truth. Uh, no matter how it's packaged. And unfortunately, I would uh, say, yes, I do believe in a little place of eternal torment. What that eternal torment looks like, uh, I couldn't really elaborate other than the fact that we get pictures and images of, of fire, of uh, worms, of just memory, that there's a recollection of an opportunity to receive the gospel, a recollection of family, people, activities, things like that. I do believe there's a literal place of eternal torment. That being said, I do believe that there are different varying degrees of, we could say hell, but ultimately like a fire, because at the great white throne judgment, we do see that the dead that rejected Jesus are judged based off their works. And so I do believe, however it's, however it's structured, that somebody that just rejected Jesus but lived a fairly moral life would not have as bad of torment as someone, say, like Joseph Stalin or Pol Pot. So I believe there's varying levels. Now, that being the case, none of those levels are anything to laugh at. You know, I, I've heard it said by one preacher, I can't remember who it was, but hell is really a place of complete in utter hopelessness. If you can imagine any point in your life, if, if you've ever had like this ginormous bill, or if you were being sued, or whatever the case is, it looks like that's hopeless. But you could go out, get a lottery ticket, you can win the Georgia lottery, make like $58 million, and then guess what? You're out of debt. Or you can go to jail for a, an act that you didn't commit be charged with uh, uh, capital punishment, but there might still be hope for an appeal. You see, it said that in hell that there is no hope whatsoever. And so you're there. You're uh, remembering everything that happened in life. You're remembering the opportunities that you had for salvation through Jesus Christ and his blood for you. But we got to remember, Jesus tells us, that hell was prepared for devil and his angels. Hell was not prepared or created for man. You see, when Jesus, when, when, when Satan fell, I believe that's when hell was established. 
And Jesus established it because Satan fell. And this plan was put into place for a captivity area for him and the minions. But the fact of the matter is that God doesn't send people to hell, regardless of what Calvinism might teach. And, and I know I'll hear, hear the argument, oh, we don't teach that. Well, if God doesn't choose somebody for salvation, then God obviously chose them uh, for hell. And so I'm not a Calvinist for that and many other reasons. But God doesn't send people to hell. God prepared hell for his devil and his angels, but people reject Jesus and people choose hell, a state of utter hopelessness and despair. And so if you're listening to this, you have heard the gospel numerous times just now. And if you're not receiving the gospel and looking at yourself and the fact that you're a sinner, that you've done things, even if you look at the Ten Commandments, just choose any one of them, you broke it. Even when you first started talking, you lied. You said no to your parents when the answer was yes, you did do that thing. That separates all of us from a lifetime of eternity with God. And so the only payment for that, and we're told this numerous times in Scripture, is John three sixteen: For God so loved you that he gave his only begotten Son so that you would believe and have everlasting life. And the fact that Jesus came, lived the life you couldn't live, died the death you deserved to die, but he rose again and ascended to heaven on that third day so that you could have eternal life. All you have to do is look and live and say, Jesus, I know that I'm separated from you because of my sins and my wickedness. I can't do anything to save myself, but I am trusting and accepting the gift of salvation that Jesus gave me on the cross 2,000 years ago. And I know that his promise and his protection assures my eternity. And I thank you for that. That's really all you got to do. But if you're listening to this and you don't have Jesus as your Savior, God did not send you to hell. You're willingly choosing to go there. And so is there a literal place of eternal torment? Yes, commonly referred to as hell. But again, in Revelation chapter 20, we see that death and hell are cast in the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is the eternal flames. We also see in Revelation chapter 20, where it says, The beast and the false prophet are tormented day and night forever. And so that leads the credence to a physical, actual location for eternity. Man, I, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time out to extend the invitation to accept the gospel and Jesus Definitely. Christ as uh, Lord and Savior. And uh, I, I also want to encourage if there's anybody out there that's listening to this that uh, I don't know uh, if a, a non-believer would ever listen to this podcast. But if you if you are happening to listen to this, um, I do also want to extend the invitation out and uh, just compel you. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. There's so many people that die. Uh, every mm. single day unexpectedly at all different ages. And so why oh. not today? Why not accept Jesus Christ now? And uh, I'm just going to compel you to repent, a.k.a. change your mind about Jesus. I'm not. You don't have to clean up your life to come to Christ. All you have to do is change your mind about what you believe concerning the gospel and accept him as your Lord and Savior. Now, my next question is, um, we have only two more questions left. Okay. But this next question is, uh, are there any opposing views out there that have ever made you seriously question what you believe regarding eschatology? In other words, has anyone ever brought up a point that still makes you scratch your head? As far as uh, staying on topic with whether futurist, uh, preterist, historicist, or idealist, again, uh, when I came to the conclusion of this teaching, uh, what, what I believe Scripture taught, uh, 
I did so without even knowing uh, any of the terms or knowing there was even a debate. I came from it just a simple uh, study of it. Again, it was many hours put into the study just because I love study. I'm a Bible geek and everything. Uh, so as far as opposing views regarding that, no, there there was no opposing views that made me question. When I do think of like other things, such as tribulationalism. Now, I'm a pre-trib guy, but there are some interesting things that mid-tribbers uh, present as far as arguments. And so I would put probably like 95% on a pre-trib, maybe leave 5% as a mid-trib. I'm not a post-trib whatsoever. As far as the futurist is concerned, no, there was never any opposing views because I've done in-depth study on it. Now, I'm not saying that I will never, uh, well, yeah, I am. I, I, I put too much study into this. I will be hard-headed on it because, again, methodology with hermeneutics and then just understanding Jewish context, I just, I don't see any way around futurist uh, point of view. All right, which leads to the uh, very final question is, uh, could you possibly be wrong about futurism? Again, not trying to be arrogant. No, I truly believe this is uh, was actually recorded in Scripture. Looking at it from a dispensational, oh, I use that word again. Ooh, dispensation, uh, dispensational point of view. No, I, there's no way I could be wrong because, like I said, I've already pointed out some uh, what I believe are some key passages that futurists, historicists, and idealists can't get around, such as the fact of the everlasting righteousness, the singular iniquity of Jacob, the 144,000 witnesses, the two witnesses that dead uh, lived on the street or died on the streets for three days and then rose again and ascended to heaven. There are too many passages that completely refute any other point of view. So could I be wrong about futurism? No, I'm sorry, I can't. Well, uh, again, man, I appreciate you coming on to the podcast and uh, helping us out with another episode of the Berean Dialogues. If you're listening today and you're interested in apologetics, I encourage you to go and check out C4C Apologetics, uh, both on YouTube. And I believe you also uh, recently started a podcast, correct? We do. We actually have a uh, – we're actually on iTunes. We're on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, CastBox, and I think – think that's it. So you should be able to find us no matter where. So I'm trying to update podcasts for every Monday something will drop. Uh, they tend to be a little easier to do than the YouTube videos because it's less set up and it's easier editing. So check it out. Leave me like, comment, subscribe and everything. Uh, if you do check it out, tell me where I'm wrong. Uh, I love just arguing. Be you know, Russ, people get the wrong idea as far as arguments are concerned. They, they see arguments uh, as a a bad thing as a negative connotation, but really, you know, arguments are just a, uh, sort of like a, a lawyer term, just defending a reason why you believe and such as admonition that we find in first Peter chapter three, verse 15, where we're supposed to give a defense, uh, reason for the hope that lies within us with meekness and fear after we have sanctified Jesus in our hearts. And so, yeah, I, I'd love to sit here and argue <laughs> with anybody out there just to give reasons why I believe I'm not right on everything. Uh, hopefully I'm right on some things. Uh, I at least know I'm right on futurism, but, uh, so check it out and everything. Uh, like I said, like subscribe, comment, whatever the case is, but Russ, I do appreciate you having me on and do pray for you, your family and your ministry out there in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And hopefully one day, Lord willing, we're going to get out there and, uh, 
just listen to you preach in person. Man, that would be awesome, man. I'm looking forward to the day, Lord willing. And uh, again, I'm going to also be praying for you and your family and that God continues to uh, use you and your ministry to to reach the lost uh, for the gospel of Jesus Christ and to help equip other believers to be able to defend their faith. Uh, you're a good friend of mine, and I appreciate mm. you coming on the show. I think you did a good job articulating and uh, being being very concise about uh, what you believe uh, concerning futurism. And I encourage those who are listening to this, uh, who have heard the uh, previous segment on preterism and now futurism, to really look at both arguments. Uh, go back and look at the scriptures. Pray about it. Research it for yourself. Don't just take somebody's word for it because they're persuasive mm-hmm. and uh, very elegant at speaking. Go and mm-hmm. look these things up for yourself. Study to show yourself approved and be able to rightly divide the word of God. Now, again, mm-hmm. uh, I appreciate you coming onto the show. Looking forward to possibly having you on again because uh, you're a flat earther, isn't that correct? <laughs> <laughs> I am far uh, from it, my friend. I am a spherical earther, if uh, you will. All right. Yeah, uh, but I appreciate you coming on to the show and just having a good time and cutting up with me, man, man and uh, taking the time out of your day. Uh, Definitely. But, uh, God bless you, man. You too, man. Thanks for having me. All right, bye